On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, a different kind of show. My podcast partner, Sue Kalinsky, interviews me and we get very personal. We talk about what I was like as a kid, the part of my life where I was a born again Christian, living a closeted life, my struggles with bipolar disease, and what my life might look like after I retire. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. And don't forget, leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob M. Ronnie. Accident or injury, call Jacob M. Ronnie. Call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinsky. Interesting experiment today. Sue is going to interview me. We'll get to that. But first, you saw Hamilton last night, and you'd seen it on Disney, but never saw it live. What did you think? It was like the most amazing show I've ever seen. And I just cannot believe that one person wrote everything. It's just, it's mind boggling. I I can't even, you know what? I I need to invent a new word to describe the brilliance of um, of Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, it's just, I just can't believe it. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd heard a lot of the songs because I, you know, because I saw it, you know, on TV, but I mean, it was just, it was so smart and so funny and so current. (laughs) Right, so current, and I got a history lesson. Yeah, Stuff I know. Ne- I I knew nothing really specific about that era. I mean, this may be the the failing of social studies at mommy high school, but a lot of that stuff I was hearing for the first time. That era of the formation of our government and who Hamilton really was. I to me, it's got to be impossible, impossibly difficult to essentially teach a history lesson in the most entertaining way possible. And you're right. I mean, that's one of those ones where I often say when I walk out of a Broadway show or a a production, wow, imagine to have written that thing, even that one thing. And to have done that is amazing. Even just one song. Yeah, just one song. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I went with Kathy Ladman and, you know, I was, you know, we were just talking about like just the talent that there is out there. Like this was one, this is one cast in LA. Yeah. And you know that this is playing everywhere in like every city in the country. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if it, if it's, if it's international, but everybody was so amazing. There was not one weak link in the entire cast. I'll tell you a quick story. So I, you know, when we lived in New York, I regularly went to the duplex, which was downtown, I think, fourth and Christopher uh, piano bar. Yeah. I used to do stand up there. Oh, there you go. Okay, cool. So on Friday nights at 10 PM in the upstairs room, they had a production or a, a, a showcase called strictly Sondheim. 
and people would show up, just random people would show up and do numbers. And, and they weren't all necessarily Sondheim numbers. They would do everything. And I was blown away by the amount of talent, particularly in New York, the amount of musical talent. And I would look at these people performing and I would say, how are how did you not make it yet? Like, how are you not on Broadway right now? Because of this sheer amount of talent uh, that exists, particularly in New York, Broadway town. But you're right. I mean, the talent is just amazing in Hamilton. Just amazing. Yeah. And you would think, you know, you, you get these parts and you're and you're so amazing in it. And then, you know, the next day, you know, you're standing behind a bar serving drinks. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. All right. So let's get to our thing here. So we did this a while back. John Ireland interviewed um, me and the reverse happened. I interviewed John Ireland from ESPN. And the idea is this. So right now you're listening to this show. And maybe it's on your earbuds, right? Or it's in your car. And it is, podcasting is an incredibly intimate form of communication. Chances are you're listening by yourself. It's just you and us right now. So the premise here is that uh, let's, let's find a way to give people more of the background on who we are. We're more than just people who talk to really cool guests on the show. Let's get into sort of the the down and dirty emotional background, the the life experience of each of us. I'll do you on a future show. Uh, today is your chance to interview me. And so, Sue Kalinsky, I say, take it away. All right. Well, I would like to go back to um, the beginning of Steve Mason because I know a lot about the present and I do know some of your past. I listened to the obviously listened to the podcast that John interviewed you. Um, so there was very heavily detailed stuff about your career and you and John and what you did in Ohio, you know, in the early days. But I want to know what were you like as a little kid? Mm. Were you were you like were you a precocious kid? Were because you, you're very impish, and you know were you a troublemaker? Did, did, you know, did you get sent to the principal's office a lot? Were you a great student? Tell me about you as a, as a little kid. So I was incredibly shy as a little kid, and my grandmother Rose Santa Cruz in Altoona, Pennsylvania, would always tell the story that I really didn't start talking until I was three, and. They thought, my family thought, I might have a learning disability because I was so painfully shy. I started talking when I was three, and I became the the good boy in the family. I was the absolute, I mean, I say this with humility. I actually, I, I was a really, really good kid. I had really good grades. I obsessed over grades. I, I always did the right thing in my family. Uh, my dad had a uh, heavy drinking problem, so I would often defend my mom in fights. I was really kind of the classic first child trying to do everything right. And this is a true story. When I went to high school, I got one B the entire time I was in high school. 
damn you, Mr. Gas and, and your algebra class. Cause I got to be in algebra. When I went to Bowling Green, one B the entire time I was at Bowling Green, I was obsessed with being perfect. And you often say I'm a micromanager. I was micromanaging myself at a very young age. Huh? And, um, so you, so you, you kind of remind me of, um, and I forget the last, it, it was Family Ties, Michael J. Fox character. Yeah. Would, would you say that you were kind of like him? Yeah, I would say I was. I was uh, smarter. I, had, I related to grownups better than I did to other kids. And I also, <laughs> you know what else I had in common? I was a Republican when I was young. I, at what age were you a Republican? Uh, from, the, from the jump, I was a Republican. I were, your, were your parents? My parents were decidedly apolitical. I never heard my parents talk about politics. I was into politics in the 70s, uh, and I was always rooting for the California candidates. So there were a couple of elections, like 76, where Reagan was running for the nomination on the Republican side. He didn't get it that year. And Jerry Brown was running on the Democratic side. And I was rooting for both the California guys. I really didn't know politics, just California seemed like the coolest place in the world. And I wanted our president to be from there. Um, but when Reagan came along, um, I was at Bowling Green. And I will say that most of the people that were my friends were Republicans. And in a somewhat little known fact, when I was uh, at Bowling Green, I was president of the Young Republicans. And they selected me to introduce President Ronald Reagan during his reelection campaign. So this would have been, he ran in 80 and 84. So this would have been like 83 uh, when I was a freshman or sophomore at Bowling Green. They chose me to introduce the president to the student body and to moderate a Q&A with the president, which was the craziest experience of all time. Was that was that tape? I mean, do you have footage of that? I do have a I have a VHS tape of that. And here's what I remember of it. People. So I was moderating this Q&A. And what would happen? A Secret Service guy would say, uh, OK, introduce uh, Mary from Napoleon. OK, so I'd say uh, oh, um, Mary Johnson from Napoleon has a question and she would ask her question and the president would answer. And he would wrap it up and then it would come back to me. And I'd say, okay, here's Ted from, you know, Stryker. So <laughs> my friend, Ted Stryker. Uh, so uh, at the end of it, the secret service said, okay, uh, tell the president that'll be the last question. And so I said, uh, Mr. President, this will be the final question. And president Reagan said, huh? And I said, Mr. President, um, this this will be the final question. Huh? And I said, I said, this will be the final question. And finally he got it. But every all my friends said, oh, my God, you were like a smart ass with the president. I said, <laughs> this will be the last question. So, yeah, I was that in a different life. I was a young Republican and I was cleared by the Secret Service to actually introduce the president and to moderate that Q&A. Oh, my God. And then when did you switch parties? I switched parties about, let's see, who's the first Democrat I voted for? First Democrat I voted for was Bill Clinton. So that would have been 84. I, I supported, uh, so 84 was Reagan. 88 
was Bush and I supported Bush. And then 92 was the first Democrat I supported. That was uh, Bill Clinton. And, and what was your reason for switching part? What was it about Clinton? Well, first of all, he's like unbelievably magnetic as a personality, right? He was a better politician, a more charismatic politician than George W. Bush. I'm sorry, than uh, Herbert Walker Bush. But also I was coming to terms with the fact that I was gay and there was a lot of anti-gay stuff in the Republican platform at that point. And I was finally coming to terms with things. So I decided I should really uh, align my personal views with whatever candidate I was going to support. So that was the main reason for switching. Yeah, you said he was very magnetic. I remember um, Judy Gold, and I think it may have been when she was on our show in New York, um, she was saying that he was, she was so attracted to him, you know, she's gay. Yeah. And she said she was so attracted to him that she would actually fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody said, I never got to meet him. I met Reagan. I, I met uh, Herbert Walker and I interviewed George W., but I never met Bill Clinton. But everybody says that when you talk to Bill Clinton, it's like you're the only person in the world that you have his full attention. And that's one of the reasons why people uh, in a room, Clinton works a room, like, or at least then, worked a room like nobody else. Now, was you, is, were you nervous? I mean, I, I, I very rarely would even see you being nervous interviewing people because your skills are, are so sharp. But I know that you, you, so you interviewed Jimmy Carter at yes. some point too. Um, is, and that's when you, you did the show with John? Uh, that's that, when I did that- the show with Tom Snyder. Oh, okay. When I was and, working with Tom Snyder and I worked with him in 96, 97, 98. Okay. Let's go back a little bit. So how did okay. you get the gig working with Tom Snyder? So I was listening to the, first of all, I was always a huge Tom Snyder fan. As a little kid, I loved Tom Snyder on the radio. I listened to him in the middle of the night on ABC radio. I lit, I, I would sneak down and watch the tomorrow show which I thought was the coolest thing in the world. He had that cigarette hanging. And I remember very clearly him interviewing Charles Manson. (laughs) And we had a book, the book Helter Skelter was in our basement, in our bookshelf. And I was forbidden to read um, Helter Skelter. And of course I did the natural thing. I read Helter Skelter. So How How old were you? I was probably 12 years old. Pretty scary. Yeah. By the way, I also read The Happy Hooker by Xavier Hollander, I think was her name. Now, was that out like in, on a bookshelf in Sitting your house? on a bookshelf. Like my family was proud. See, we've got uh, The Happy Hooker on the shelf. This is our reading library. So I read Helter Skelter. And then Tom Snyder did an interview with Charles Manson from prison. I was like, oh, I got to see this. So I remember sneaking down. And uh, downstairs in the basement, turned on the TV, and I watched Snyder interview uh, uh, Charles Manson. And I was fascinated by this whole thing. So I love Tom Snyder from a very young age. And while everybody else was listening to classic rock in the 70s, and I've got this huge blind spot in my uh, music-loving history, because the mid-70s, I was listening to talk radio, either Larry King or Tom Snyder every single night, all night long. My parents had no idea what was going on. And uh, Tom was a hero of mine. And his interviewing style, I think, is still, I, I learned a lot from him. So 
when I was listening to the radio one night, I heard a guy named Elliot Forrest co-hosting a show with Tom Snyder. And my immediate thought was, well, why the hell is he doing that gig? Like, why? How did Elliot Forrest get this job? And by the way, Elliot, I, I have no idea if he's listening, but he's a New Yorker. He's, uh, and I listened to him. I thought, well, he's just okay. He's just okay. I think I could do a better job. So I got in touch. I'd done the Olympics with Westwood One and CBS, and CBS was doing this show. So I called, uh, had my agent call the president of uh, CBS programming and said, hey, I've got this guy named Steve Mason. And we want him to, uh, we, we want to see if he can fill in. So I remember going in on a Thursday and Friday. And so my strategy was, I'm going to blow the doors off with great guests. Um, I'm, I'm going to really make my mark by having a couple of great guests on the show. And it was a Friday night and I was working with David Singer, who you know, Dave Singer, who was my producer a long time at ESPN and now is at the NFL Network. Um, he... I, I said, I, I need a big fish. I need a big fish for this to really make an impression. So he found a way to get Tom Hanks and Brian Grazer onto the show together on the Friday that Apollo 13 came out. Oh, my God. And I was like, this is total home run ball. I literally won the job with that particular interview between the two of them. And I remember really clearly... Uh, Tom uh, Hanks was on the phone. Brian Grazer with that crazy hair was in studio. And I remember picking up with Tom or uh, Tom Hanks. And I said, uh, hi, hi, Tom, uh, it's Steve Mason. And uh, I want, want you to know, this is my first national interview. So, you know, kind of bear with me. And Tom Hanks said, don't worry, Steve, I'll get you through this. And we Aww. did the interview. Couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been cooler. I got a lot of this. Well, that's a good question, Steve. I got a lot of that kind of stuff because he was uh -huh. kind of coaxing me along and I won the job on that night. Plus, Tom and I got along really well. The idea was I would do the first hour and a half. Tom would come in and do a half hour and then we would do a half hour together. And the Tom and I clicked almost right away. Um, we like totally got each other and and had had great chemistry. He never really uh was uh had that click with Elliot Forrest. So I wound up getting the job about three months later. Wow. And then did you remain friends with him for his entire life? Tom Snyder, yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh he passed away of uh, leukemia a few years back. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, the thing I learned about from him and through a bunch of broadcast, Howard Stern is one of them. Um uh, the authenticity that Tom approached his show with. He was very personal. He would open with like five minutes of basically, here was my day. And I was always so impressed with that, that he was willing to kind of lay it all out there and to be honest and to be real and to be authentic. And I think that's one of the things that has always informed me after that as a, as a radio personality and, and talk show host is that when you are honest, you really connect with people. So that's kind of what I've always gone for. And what I, what I learned, I think, a lot from Tom. Yeah, you know, it's like, um, you know, Jack Parr was um, before. Yep, Jack Parr came before. Came before Steve Allen. 
Oh, no, no. No, Steve Allen. Steve it was Allen's, Steve then Allen, Jack Parr. Then, then Jack, Jack Parr. Yeah. And and the thing about Jack Parr, what that I thought was is basically what you're talking about. He used to start, he never did a monologue, monologue. Yeah. He used to sit down on that stool and he would say like, a funny thing happened on the way to work today. Yes. And he would just tell you exactly what happened. Yep. And um, yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, and, and working with you, I mean, that's something that I've actually learned from you because when we started working together at WNEW in New York, that was my first radio gig. Right. And even though I had been a stand up and I was used to being in front of an audience, it is a different animal um, co-hosting a show. Yes. And because um, there's no set. There's no set. And um, it's it's completely free for. And, and, you know, there is a skill to interviewing people. Yes. Um, and I remember you, we came out to L.A. to do a junket and uh, it was a press junket for uh, the brand new shows that were coming on the air. Yes. And Ted Danson came into our little tent area. Yes. And you actually said to him, I thought you were going to be an asshole. <laughs> and I could not believe that you that you said that to him. And he just laughed yeah. and he looked at you and he said, oh, my God, he says, why would you think I'd be an asshole? And you I don't even remember what you responded, but just the fact that you said that to him. And I thought, OK, all right, this is a, this is this is a game changer here. I mean, OK, then we, we could do stuff like that. I, right. could, I could say stuff like that. Sure. And did. And did. And yeah. did. So um, I want to know how, you know, we talked to Michelle Beadle recently and, and I posed the question um, because we were all big um, sports fans. Yes. Um, when did sports come into your life? Uh, did, did, was, was your dad a big sports guy? Did you yeah, watch sports a lot? In my family, sports was the common language. Um, if you couldn't talk sports, I mean, you know, the, the big question in my family was, are you watching the game? And uh, my dad would always call me, are you watching the game? And my grandfather, who hardly ever spoke, the only thing he talked about was sports. The only thing. So if I wanted to have a conversation with my grandfather, this is Steve Mashansky Sr. I'm Steve the III. Um, I had to know sports. So that was probably my first, there were games on all the time. So I was constantly learning sports. But on top of that, I got a job as the bat boy for the Toledo Mudhens when I was about 12 years old. And I just fell in love with baseball. Baseball was my game. And after that first season, they hired me, and I was, I was young. I was probably 16, 17 years old. They hired me to be the traveling secretary. So I would travel all year with, uh, with that team, and it was all buses. You know, it's like a 15-hour bus ride to Virginia Beach or 12-hour bus ride to Rochester, New York. Um, and I, I traveled with the team. And the really cool thing was that the so, – okay, so <laughs> here you go. So – I was running with this group called the God Squad or known as the God Squad. And I'm trying to remember Ray Smith, Tim Tuffle was part of this. Uh, you know, Tim Tuffle played sure, for the Mets. The Mets. Mm -hmm. And everybody was very, very religious. And um, in, Richmond, in Richmond, Virginia, with all these guys, I committed my life to Christ. 
and I and I became born again. Oh my God, I had no idea. Yeah. And yeah, you would never know now, would you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I became born again. And I became very much an evangelical. And those guys were so good to me, in part because of that, in part because I fell in with this group. But they ended up letting me take batting practice. Uh, a lot of times, you know, a few games a week, I took batting practice. They allowed me to take infield practice. I was like a killer pepper player. I was like king of pepper. Um, everybody loved playing with me. So I fell in love with the game in part because, uh, to a great degree, because of that relationship I had with uh, minor league baseball. And what was your, what was your background as far as you know, you know, going to church? Like, did you grow up with with a lot of religion? I grew up Catholic. <clears throat> we never missed church under any circumstances, even when. One of us was sick. We were made to go to church on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights. They had Saturday night was guitar mass. I don't know if you know that, but you know Saturday night tended to be a really hip uh, service, um, and uh, they had guitars and tambourines and stuff. So we would go to, no matter what every week. And I, my family, just cringed at this idea that I was born again because not only was I born again. I was taught by these guys that my job was to get other people um, to accept their life uh, or, or commit their life to Christ. And so I would start conversations where I would try to, I would evangelize. And my mom and dad were just like horrified. Don't do that. Don't talk to them and leave that man alone. Uh, but I would, I would evangelize. And ultimately, um, uh, I grew out of this particular stage of my life, but I was one of those people that would quote Bible verses. I went to Bible study. Like I was hardcore Christian. And this was all from hanging out with these ball players. Yeah. With, with the God squad. So like, like, like just say you were at like a mall and you were at, you know, um, a food court and there were people that were like, would you like go over and just talk to people? I mean, how did that, how any, did that manifest? Any common conversation, any regular conversation, like even kids at school, um, I would, uh, I remember a really clear moment where I was, I was a kid who swore. I was running around with this guy named Dave Haney and he swore all the time. And I remember a specific moment and I, I would drop F-bombs and stuff, you know, quietly, not where teachers could hear. And I remember a day when I went in and I told Dave Haney, I couldn't swear with him anymore because I committed my life to Christ. And wow. here's what I learned. And I would I talk, try to talk Dave Haney into becoming born again. He was like, fuck that. Um, <laughs> so did you lose, did you lose a lot of friends in this a lot transformation? Of yeah, I lost a lot of friends. Because for me, I set up these rules for myself and I wasn't going to break them. And I'm trying to remember, I think I was probably freshman, sophomore in high school when this was going on. And then junior year, I probably lightened up a little bit. It was, it was honestly a phase that I grew completely out of. I'm glad I went through it because, you know, it's kind of cool to say I was born again. And by the way, I'm covering my bets because the Bible says once you're born again, uh, you get into the gates of heaven. So I did it. Now I don't practice it anymore, but since I did it once, I think I've covered my bets. Like I think the gates are open for me when I go. So it's on your resume. It's on, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this kid, this kid was born again. Let him in, let him in. He's smoking pot every day, but 
Exactly. <laughs> so when did you, speaking of pot, when did you first start to smoke pot? I never smoked pot in high school, never smoked pot at Bowling Green. I really didn't start smoking pot until we were in New York. Really? Yeah. I'd never smoked pot until we got to New York. And what, what provoked that? Well, you were there. <laughs> it was a bitch of a job. <laughs> it's a hard job. So, yeah. So I, I started learning about, uh, about pot when I was in New York and it started out that every Friday I would smoke and we would finish a show on Friday at 10 AM and I would immediately go to McDonald's and I would have my standard order, which was two Big Macs, 10 piece chicken McNuggets, two large fries, hot apple pie and caramel sundae. And I would go home. I would get rock and stone. I would eat the whole bag and I would go to sleep to decompress from the week. So I started just on Fridays and I actually used, I think I used a delivery guy that you recommended. He'd show up on a bike. <laughs> you you'd call a number, you'd enter a code and he'd show up on a bike. And that's how, how you got, I uh, got weed in those days because it wasn't legal. But, um, but yeah, that's when I started to smoke pot. And I've had on and off period. Like I've had periods where I do and periods where I don't. Right now, I happen to be. I'm edibilizing. Uh, but yeah, it didn't start until I was in New York. So I met you. Well, I met you at a time in your life where I feel like you were in a good space. You know, you were doing your the TV show on uh, Fox Sports Net, right? Fox with, Sports with, West, with John. Yeah. Fast forward west with with John and um, you know I met you up at the Seattle um, celebrity uh, golf tournament and it was you know a blast and then um, so there's a couple of things I want to ask you yeah you asked me when we were up in Seattle this was like a star studded event we had yes. people like Samuel Jackson and Josh Charles and um, Chris McDonald I mean a Mark lot of Harman, on and Mark on, Harmon yeah. and like Bill Gates was there a lot of a lot of um, Big, I think Detlef Shrimp was there one year. So you asked me to come on your, you were doing your show remotely and you asked me to come on your show. And I joked with you and I said, who canceled? Yes. Because the show was very early in the morning. And I really want to know why me and did someone really cancel? Out of all the celebrities that were there, why me? So first of all, you and I did that baseball game together. Mm-hmm. We did play-by-play play of that game. And it was you, me, I think it was Ladman, Kathy Ladman and Mark Harmon. And Mark Harmon. We did that game together. And you're the person I felt like I clicked with the most. And I also thought Mark Harmon is not going to get up at 4 a.m. to do the Mason and Ireland show back to L.A. And I thought, who will? Well, it's this, it's this broad who I clicked with during the game. And so that's why you got the invitation. It's because Sam Jackson is not getting up at 4 a.m. Bill Gates is not going to do the show. But you know what? This stand-up comic, Sue Kalinske, I bet she's just crazy enough to do it. And sure enough, you did. Right, right, right. And, and then, so then soon after, um, you got a call to go to New York to mm -hmm. do WNEW. And um, I, I know there's more history. I know Jimmy... Kimmel was somebody who was uh, they wanted was considered to, for the was show. Considered yeah. for the show. Um, why me there? God, it's such a good question. Why was it you? Again, I I think like we talked to Fritz Coleman. Mm -hmm. 
uh, recently. And I was talking to Fritz. We were talking to Fritz about chemistry. And he said, chemistry cannot be created. It's either there or it's not. And I told the question of, I, I answered the question about uh, how I found John Ireland for ESPN. And they literally tried 20 people. I mean, I, I was trying everybody. Michelle Tafoya was one of the people mm. uh, that, and I thought she was great. I didn't think it was a match, but ultimately I thought John was a match because instantaneously, bam, it was there. I always felt that way with you. I always felt that you and I had instant chemistry. And I also thought, I should do the show. I'm going to New York. I'm from Ohio. I've lived in California for 20 years. I should go to New York and work with somebody who's from New York. And you were from New York. And I had also seen you do stand-up. And I thought, Sue's really, really funny. So I think those are the things that led to it. But it was a little bit, I, I would say it was probably to you a little out of the blue that I called you and said, hey, was it? It was a little out of the blue and it was the greatest. It was probably the best out of the blue because I wasn't working. Um, and, you know, sex in the city was, was over and I didn't go back to it. And I split up from my writing partner and I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I get a call from you. Yeah. Um, you want to come to New York. And it was the coolest thing in the world was that I didn't even have to audition for the gig. No, it's true. You just had the job. I just had the job. And then after I had the job, I came, I went to New York to meet everybody. Yep. And while I was there, um, Caroline's booked me for like a weekend or something. Yeah. And everybody from the station came down to see me. Like, who did we hire that we've never seen before? Yeah, that's true. And thank God I had a, you know, I had a great show. Um, so you had a lot of, uh, you had a lot of, um, issues emotionally when, when we worked together, which I mean, I just, I just knew you from LA and we didn't really know each other that long. Right, I didn't right. know you that well, but you are like fun loving guy, um, great sense of humor, very, very lighthearted. And, <laughs> and then, um, soon into our time on the air you took kind of a dark turn. Yes. And um, so, A, was that brewing before you got to L.A. or was it New York that brought it out? It was brewing. It was going to happen no matter what. So the late 90s, I... You know, the, the, it's funny, Bill Simmons does these pod, peak of their power. I thought the late 90s were the peak of my powers. I was doing Snyder. I was doing the Fox Morning Show. I was getting called in to do things like I was a finalist for Talk Soup. I was finalist for later. I, like I was at my, at my peak, my pinnacle, I think. And uh, that job came along and I had just ended a relationship. Um, I just shattered my foot in an accident. Uh, where I tried to jump over a bar that was impossibly high and I had no chance of jumping over and I shattered my right foot. I was manic. I was experiencing mania. And I was like through the roof. I could do anything, including jump over that bar. So I was still manic by the time I got to New York. But I remember this really clearly. 
um, when we were there and we had signed uh, to do the show, we, w- we didn't start it for about a month. And I remember going to see a movie called Stepmom. And it was a Susan Sarandon movie. And at the very beginning, uh, Scott Muni comes on the radio. That's the scene. Um, Susan Sarandon in bed, Scott Muni comes on the radio. Scott Muni was a legendary DJ at WNEW and she hits the snooze button. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to possibly compete with Scott Muni and, and the legendary sort of status that he had. And so I became very unsettled. Plus there, John Minnelli had written some stuff about us in the post. Um, I forget who the writer was at the daily news. He was kinder. You you remember the writer from the Daily News? I do, I do. I forget his name, but he he was very nice to us. John Manelli from the Post was kind of a dick. Um, it was basically saying these guys are here to ruin rock and roll or something like that. And I became very unsettled by the whole thing. And then our boss was incredibly erratic. Right. Um, it was not clear what we were supposed to do. Um, we were supposed to invent it ourselves. Um, and I was nervous. I was shaken. And the truth was. I was entering sort of a big down curve. So if the, if the late nineties were, I was high when I got to 2099 and 2000, I, I was low and I was pretty self-loathing at that point too. I didn't right. like myself very much. Right. Yeah. Because you, when we were still in LA, I remember it was after I had done you, your show with John. Um, you said, I have something I want to tell you. And you told me you were gay. Yeah. And I was like, oh, stop it. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like the Wolfman telling, telling you that they're the Wolfman. And it's like, Ari, stop it. You're not the Wolfman. And it's like, no, no, no. I really am the Wolfman. And, um, and I, I was just floored. I mean, and it sounds so weird. And I don't even know if it's if it's insulting to say to somebody, um, you just didn't seem gay. You know, I mean, there was <laughs> nothing about you that was gay. Um, you were such a guy's guy. And um, and then you said to me, no, I, I really am. And I and a lot of people don't know. And I mean, I was flattered that I was in your life for such a short period of time and you felt comfortable enough to tell me. And, you know, I never, I think, I think maybe the only person I told was Kenny Ober, who I was dating. Right, right. But I, I, I didn't tell anybody else. And I remember saying to Kenny, you can't say anything because he's on the air and he's not out. And, you know, and, and Kenny was shocked. You yeah, know? yeah. So, um, so we go to New York and um, you're going through this horrible time and, and, and things were uncomfortable uh, w- with us for, for a period there. Yeah. And, um, and I didn't know anything about you being bipolar. I didn't know that you were on medication or maybe you weren't taking your medication. I didn't know any of this. I just thought that f- you just were being an asshole and you were being an <laughs> asshole to me. And, um, and I started to just feel like, um, really self-conscious, on the radio with you because, you know, you were the radio guy. You were the guy that, that kind of knew how to do it. And, you know, you had a way about yourself when, when, when you could, when you could go there, um, you would be like a little mean to me. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, how am I going to stay at this job? 
and we and I never like really talked to you about it. I guess I felt uncomfortable yeah. talking to you about your behavior, but I think it was Schleppo, our, our producer Eric, who told me that um that you did that this was going on with you. And yes. I think that you weren't taking taking your medication. Well, no, but, I wasn't diagnosed until ninety nine. Well, so, no. Well, oh, 99. Not, that's well, when I was diagnosed as bipolar. That's when we were there. That's when we were there. Yeah, now that's what I'm saying. When we were on the air and you weren't taking your medication and you were kind of mean to me. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, like, what what am I going to do? How am I? And 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 I guess I just like I said, I just I guess I just felt uncomfortable approaching you. Well, about you know, it. So it was a weird period because and, you know, I'm I take my medication now and all that stuff. But in 1999, the doctor was experimenting with the medication, like try this and then try that. That didn't work. Okay, let's try this. So I always think of bipolar disease, bipolar one, as being able to solve a combination lock. And it took a while to solve sort of the puzzle of what meds were right for me. And I, that's when it was, I was going through that period where he was trying, okay, try this, uh, try Lamictal, try Lamotrigine, try, I mean, all these different meds, by the way, Lamictal and Lamotrigine are the same thing. Just if somebody bipolar is listening, you know that, (laughs) um, but I, so we were trying different stuff and that's why I was in such an erratic period. Um, and I also, I mean, I never, I don't think I've ever talked about this, but I got strung out on Xanax when I was in New York. Mm. And I mean, I was taking a lot of Xanax and to the point where when I came home from New York, it took me about six months to taper off of it completely. Uh, But I was really, I, I was hardcore and I would say, I would say not. I mean, I wouldn't use the word addict since I did quit it, but I was really strung out on it and it made me even more erratic. I think my doctor sucked. I don't think he should have ever prescribed that much Xanax for me. Doctor feel bad. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he really was. He really never solved the, the puzzle, but that's why I went through that really hardcore period was because he was experimenting with, with meds and trying to get the right combo. And I mean, I mean, did you know that? I mean, you must have felt it, that there was tension between us. I mean, was there ever a time where you were like, I, maybe maybe I need to sit down and talk to Sue and tell her what's going on? Or you were just so wrapped up in it that it was like, uh, it, it never well, there was Well, sh- there was shame involved. Okay. Yeah, there was shame involved. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it ran, it was rife in my family, but nobody ever got treatment for it. And I guess I was from that generation where people said, you know, if you, if you're having mental health problems, you're probably weak, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get out there and work. I think there was a lot of that going on that I didn't want to acknowledge in a real way. Cause now I, I talk about it even on the air. Uh, but at that point I, there was a lot of shame associated with it. And I, I actually think I might have told Eric, our producer. You did, because he yeah. told me. Because he would say to me sometimes, uh-oh, you have that thousand-yard stare um, where I would just like look off and I was lost in my own 
thoughts and my own crazy thoughts. Um, so yeah, I don't know why I never told I, you already knew I was gay. The other thing was I never committed fully to New York. I think that's one of the reasons why ultimately it didn't work because you'll remember this. Um, I was dating a guy mm-hmm. and, uh, and super nice guy. And I would fly to LA and see him one weekend. Then the next weekend he would fly to New York and see me. Then I would fly home. To, I mean, I was flying home twice a month to LA to see him and he was flying twice a month to New York. So I was like, I never fully moved to New York. And I think keeping my foot in the water of Los Angeles um, made it difficult for me to deal with the temperament of the city. Does that make sense? Sure. The temperament of New York is so different than the temperament of LA. And I think that's another factor in, I mean, I, I would say, then I would say people in New York are mean. Now I would say they were, they're just direct. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then it felt like I was being attacked all the time. It was the early days of the internet. I was getting mean emails. I was trying to answer every single one of them. I was just like totally, totally wrapped up and, and crazed to some degree. And so I think it probably spilled out. It spilled out on the air, which was, I thought, good radio. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, it was great radio. I mean, good radio is, you know, train wreck radio is, is really good radio. Oh, yeah. We got into a huge fight and we had to stop. Schleppo was like, you, it was like, play some music. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember, because we had comedians on, um, usually on Fridays. Yep. And, 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 it, and, and it, it definitely was on a Friday. And a comedian, I don't even know who it was, came to the studio to do the show and we were just like in a state of like hate it was just horrible and you could just oh the air was so thick and (laughs) I remember whoever it was like looking at me looking at Eric like what the fuck did I just want you know I I thought we were coming to have fun yeah I mean yeah basically walked into a fight yeah it was really intense so um so I know you talk, you talk to John a lot about this, but I want to know some stuff about you coming out. So when we were in New York, um, there were times where I, I actually, I felt bad for you because um, you had to hide who you were. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember we, you, you threw a Grammy party and a lot of people from the station came. Yes, yes. And you had to a my kind of, little tiny apartment to your little tiny apartment. And I remember you had to basically de-gay your apartment. Yeah. And you had to take pictures away. Too of, many candles. Too many, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Photos of you and the guy you were seeing. And, yeah, exactly. and I, and I rem- just remember thinking to myself that I felt so bad that you couldn't be who, who you were, yeah. you know? Um, what was that like? Because you did it for a while, and and what was it like? Like talking about like because I remember like we would we would go to clubs and you know we'd do the show the next day and you'd be like oh god I met this chick and she was really hot correct and, correct and and those so, were the days that I projected that I was straight mm-hmm. right I I was acting straight so and talking about being straight 
it was it was a terrible feeling. I mean, it was a terrible feeling. Um, and I want to say one other thing because I felt like you played with fire a little bit because your boyfriend would come and sometimes he would have a very early flight and he would come to the station and hang yep. out with us and we overlapped with another show. Yeah. And sometimes I would think, what or who who do they think this guy is <laughs> that's here at like four four thirty five o'clock in the morning taking a flight back to LA? And you know, like yeah. just a like a friend. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, I thought um that was a really hard time. I always thought when I was growing up, even back when I was in high school, college, um, I always felt like my life was a house of cards. That at any moment, if somebody found out, the whole thing would come tumbling down. Like when I was on the air in Toledo. I mean, I was actually working with my girlfriend at that point. Um, but I knew, I knew the truth of me. Um, and at what age did you know the truth of you? Probably as early as 12 or 13. In fact, one of the reasons I became born again. I thought, you know what? If God can do one thing for him, for me, make me straight. Wow. Conversion. Conversion. Exactly. I was doing my own. So I would say that period in life was really difficult. Uh, when I was in, when I came back to LA, I didn't pretend to be straight. I stopped talking about this chick did that and I, I met this girl and all that. I eliminated all that stuff. So I eliminated the line and that eased my conscience, conscience a little bit. But when I was in New York and projecting and talking about things as if I was straight, there was a, there was a lot of shame and discomfort around that. I mean, it's another reason why I was really unhappy. My circle of people who knew that I was gay only you and Eric at the station knew. Nobody else knew. Like here, the people I work with at ESPN, they've all known for a long time. Even before I came out in 2016, really everybody knew. And coming out was talked about in advance. Like ESPN was involved in supporting me through that. Um, so, yeah, that was another reason why I think I was angry uh, that I couldn't be couldn't be just honest about who I was. Right, right, right. So, um, so I wanted to ask you, um, a couple of questions here in closing. Okay. Um, Oh, these sound like doozies. Oh no, no. Oh, okay. I, 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 I kind of think they're fun. Okay. So, um, what do you take pride in the most about yourself? Well, there's so professionally or personally either or both personally it's that Juan and I have been together for 16 years uh that's that's the thing personally that I'm I'm most proud of that I've been able to you know have a loving relationship to be in love with somebody and be them for 16 years professionally I'll tell you, there was something, there was something, okay, I'll tell you what it was. David Bean Cooley was a writer for the New York Daily News. Right, right. And I was doing the Snyder Show. And 
Bob Costas was stepping down from later on NBC, which was the show that at that point came on after Carson. And David B. and Cooley wrote an article that had three pictures of the candidates for the later show. And it was Chris Rock, Greg Kinnear, and me. Hmm. And I was like, God, I... I hit it. I knew, I didn't get the job. It obviously went to Kinnear, but to even be mentioned in the same article as Chris Rock, I'm like, are you friggin' kidding me? I just um, got to chill here. Yeah. No, that just seeing that was like mm-hmm. one of those, Oh my God. I'm, I can't believe I'm being considered in that category of people. So I would say that weirdly for a job that I didn't get, that was a career highlight. Um, so knowing what a big movie buff you are, if you could, if you could have starred in any film, which character would you have liked to have portrayed? I would have liked to have portrayed Fredo in the Godfather trilogy. Oh, interesting. Why? I, because he was his vulnerability in that in those two films he was in godfather one and godfather two and a lot of people would say hey i want to be Vito or i want to be michael corleone or fredo was always the most interesting character for me i have a dog named fredo uh named after fredo who took the rowboat and and ultimately never (laughs) never came back to shore uh, but I thought I always thought Fredo was the most interesting character in The Godfather. His arc was very interesting. And if I would play, despite swagger that I have, what what little swagger I have, I've always been drawn to the characters who are a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit quote unquote weaker, a little bit more interesting. So Fredo and The Godfather is the first character that comes to mind. Okay. All right, so I'm going to wrap it up with, you talk about retiring, um, you, you know, because I know you, you know, you signed a, what was it, was it a three-year deal? A couple yeah, three-year deal. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that that will be the end of you doing radio with John? And if so, what does retirement look like for you? Because I could never, ever imagine you retired. Right. So, well, I mean, I'll be, uh, they're probably ESPN listeners right now. Uh, you, you guys keep this to yourself, but my deal is up on June the 30th. And I don't know. I don't know. Part of me thinks it might not be a bad time to walk away from it. Part of me wants to be doing this every day forever. The reality is that the job is, Although it is just goofing around and talking about sports, the job is unbelievably uh, demanding for me. Like at the end of the day, Juan will often say to, say to me, did you save anything for me? Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. Because I'm so gassed and I'm so emotionally spent after a show. Because I get, it's, it's, you know, up, up, up. It's, it's high energy, high enthusiasm, all that stuff. So... I think that's one of the reasons why I would consider walking away. Although part of me says, first of all, we'll always be doing this show. Mm -hmm. I intend to do this show 
until at least you're gone. Um, and uh, you like I die. <laughs> yeah. Until you go. <laughs> well, I didn't know where go meant. <laughs> yeah. Go. You got to be more specific. Yeah. Gates of heaven. You know, we were just oh, talking about that. Will okay. you commit your life to Christ? So, <laughs> <laughs> so. No, not a chance. <laughs> so, yeah, and I, I, I will always be doing this show. Retirement, I think, looks like this. Um, the summers here and the winters in Costa Rica continuing to do this show. But again, not to not to freak people out or Mason and Ireland fans. There's, I have no, I have no decision and no reason to indicate that I won't uh, stay on and continue to do at least one more year and one more year after that and that kind of thing. In my in my head, the last job I want to do is the 2028 Olympics here in Los Angeles because uh, I've done seven Olympics. Um, I, it's one of my favorite things. I love the Olympics. And to finish it by broadcasting at the 2028 Olympics in what I now consider to be my hometown would be like a pinnacle and a perfect time to walk away. And I would be 63 Hmm. when we get there. Uh, So 63 seems like a good number. Yeah. Right. When's Medicare kicking? 65. 65. Just two years away from Medicare. That's right. Next month for me. Well, April. April. That's when, that's when it kicks in for me. Nice. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, that that would be. But I uh, retirement will be busy. I mean, I'll write. I've got a novel that's been burning for a while now. And I don't know, I'm 60 pages into it, a young adult novel about baseball. Um, I will always be doing stuff. I will never be somebody who just sits around on the couch and watches nothing but Netflix and games. I'll always be really active. Um, I, I'll still be a Rams season ticket holder. I'll still go to all the Rams games. Uh, I'll still be a Lakers fan and Dodgers fan. I'll get to go to more Dodgers games. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, but I'll always, always be busy. And this show, I always tell people that even after I'm done at ESPN, I still intend to do this show. I love uh, doing this podcast with you. Uh, so, so that will, that will continue. So I'll never fully retire. Absolutely not. Well, I just want to thank you for um, coming out of your shy phase as a child, (laughs) because I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to picture this, this you at any phase of your life, not talking. Yeah, no, that was me. That was me. Yeah. Well, once I started, I never stopped. Well, um, well, this has been a delight for me. And uh, cool. And uh, yeah, it's been fun. I'm, oh, and I'm, we I'm will glad turn that the, you brought it up. We'll, we'll turn the tables on you uh, on an upcoming show where I get to interview you. But yeah, that was that was an, I, you know, I always try. I think I talked about stuff I've never talked about there. Well, I was hoping that was it. Yeah. Because, because I listened to your interview with John and I was like, well, you know, I mean, you already t- talked about that kind of stuff. Right, and, but you and, came and, up and, with fresh stuff. Yeah. I, and, you know, things that maybe are a little more personal for me. I mean, there was a lot of stuff with John that was personal for him. Yes. Um, so there you Nicely go. done. Nicely done. I like that very much. Good. Thank you very much for a good interview. Thank you, Steve. Um, there you have it. There's your Culture Pop podcast. Um, again, stay tuned uh, to uh, Culture Pop on Spotify and Apple and SteveMason.com because at some future date, I will interview Sue and I will bring the heat. I will bring the Mike Wallace heat.
because there's okay. stuff that I want to know. I'm ready. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, thanks a lot for listening to the Culture Pop Podcast.